It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live cast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super excited to have two fantastic guests on the show. Of course, we're going to be talking about talent, uh, leadership, everything that we tend to talk about on this show. And, uh, you know, it's really love to get these fantastic stories from wonderful leaders who can teach us something, inspire us, get us to think about things that maybe we haven't been thinking about, uh, and even suggest great books and, and resources and topics and things that, you know, if you're just, if you just keep your head down at your desk and you just do your work in your company, you may not think about other things that you should be thinking about. And that's, I think part of the reason why we have this show is to try to connect you to other ideas, connect you to other resources, connect you to other people, uh, and to get those great stories. In fact, I took a lot of the the best stories uh, and uh, put those in my first book, The Power of Company Culture. Wherever you buy books online, you can find that. And if you'd like to hear my story and the stories of so many uh, radio show guests, it's there. And I almost finished, almost wrapping up my second book called Remote Work, you know, really original. I know it's just Right, right to the point, just remote work. So uh, all about the stories that my company has gone through and my co-authors companies have gone through as well around remote, hopefully can help you now that so many of you are remote and maybe staying that way, at least in part or even forever. So we are live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, but most of you catch us on the podcast, uh, kind of get us after the fact, and that's okay. We appreciate the millions of you coming in every year that Download at least one or more episodes, whether it's on iTunes or iHeart or Spotify. And uh looks like uh, well, Paul's trying to send me a message here. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm seeing it. So, yeah, um, we'll get to that. So it uh, looks like Paul was worried that Summer's mic was was muted, but I think we'll, we'll be able to catch her before she comes in. So no problem. And so, you know, we so many of you come in after the fact, you know, iTunes, iHeartRadio. We're now on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. The point is. Go the whatever one you like. We don't really care. And subscribe. That way you get alerted each time a new one is available so you don't miss an episode. You don't miss the really cool people that uh, continue to come on this show that we get to interview and talk to. I want to make sure you see that. So um, you can also go to talenttalkradio.com. And then the last thing that I'll remind you about before we bring in my first guest is we love to kind of put the best little one-liners, the you know, the best books, uh, the maybe links to their bios, things like that in our sort of live uh, Twitter feed. So Angela, my social media uh, guru, is uh, actively putting our best comments, ignoring anything stupid we may have to say, and putting that all on Twitter. If there's a book link or something that maybe if you're listening and you didn't have a chance to write it down, it will be there. So go to at peopleg2 or follow the hashtag talent talk, all one word. And you can find us there no matter when you're listening to this particular show. So, all right. My guests today include Summer Crenshaw, the serial entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and author and CEO of Talent Now. And they are a contingent workforce management software. And then um, bring in my second guest after the radio, after the commercial break, excuse me, Colin J. Brown, the culture guy. He's going to be calling in or zooming in, might be more accurate all the way from Johannesburg, South Africa, one of my favorite places. Um, he's a keynote speaker, founder of Happy Sandpit, and author of How to Build Happy Sandpit. So uh, Colin will join me a little bit, but let's go ahead and bring in Summer. I'm sure now has her microphone undone. Um, so Summer, welcome to the show today. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, I'm really uh, glad to have you on. And 
Well, you know, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you? You know, what's important for us to know about you, your work that you do, especially as it relates to the conversation we're hopefully going to have here today. Yeah. So for the last 20 years, I've I've basically been a matchmaker and everything that I've done has basically been focused in matchmaking from mostly uh, the candidate experience side, connecting job seekers to to the the talent um, that exists. So started uh, way back uh, in the job board era in the HR tech space and evolved into consulting. And, and um, so really, uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm no different than any other matchmaking uh, individual out there. I just really like to ensure that I'm uh, connecting job seekers and uh, companies in a meaningful way. So maybe what, what have companies been doing or learning or, you know, you're talking about this matchmaking process, but it's radically changed, right? I mean, it's sort of like, I would, I like long walks on the beach and, you know, um, and dinners. And then all of a sudden now you're dating profile and I understand you're not a dating profile, but your dating profile is suddenly, (laughs) is suddenly I only like coffee and, um, and lunch dates. So like it's radically changed, not only for the employee, but for the employer. So maybe you could talk about what are some of the different things that you're seeing right now while we're still dealing with COVID? Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the, the most amazing things that I've seen is the the geographic barriers are dropping. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is that we're finally at a point where companies aren't just saying, hey, we're a beacon, you're going to come and move to our location. And that's the only way you're going to get a position. Um, I think it's amazing now as an employer or ourselves looking at talent, we can say, who is the best talent anywhere? Why, why are we worried about who will move to lovely Cincinnati, Ohio? Now I'm an evangelist for my hometown. Um, but I do know that the lifestyle here does reflect everybody's lifestyle uh, decisions that they want for them themselves or their families. So um, should I penalize amazing talent because they won't move here? And I, I don't think we should. So I think the notion of dispersed teams um, of using leveraged workforce um, as far as contingent work goes, I think that that is, it was already on a trajectory that was going up. I think uh, you know, by latest statistics pre-COVID, it was 43% of the workforce in most organizations were deemed contingent. So we know that that was complete. More companies are doubling down into that environment as they've had the, the human nature or behavioral aspect of being trained now to realize this is okay. We can actually get work done from uh, locations that are outside of the work environment. I think what we're also going to see in the future is really going to be this notion of, you know, what is remote work? Does it mean that you have to work from home or does that mean that you actually can work wherever you want to work, whenever you want to work? Um, I think the flexibility side of this is really going to be um, a challenge that we're going to have to face, especially since the high number of women have left the workforce um, since the pandemic, since 1985, it it landed under 55% of the women um, in the workforce today. That is a tremendous loss, obviously, within our workplace. But in order for that to rebound, we're going to have to address the new demands of the individual person that they are facing as they become caregivers to children or teachers when they never, uh, ever thought that they would have to teach a child um, in a homeschool environment. So these are all areas where flexibility is, is going to be in high demand. And I think that that's where uh, we're all going to have to have the, the flexible mindset, so to speak, as we merge forward and go through uh, what it looks like on the other side of, of the COVID virus. For those of you sick of me talking about, you know, I'm a remote advocate. I've been, my company's been remote since 2009, but just in case anyone who's new doesn't know that. And I've been talking about this, this idea of location bias, right? That you brought it up, that you have to be in this particular town or city in order to get a job here. Um, and yet I've been telling people, you can get that same awesome person or maybe even a more awesome person in a market where they're half the price or 20% less or whatever, because the cost of living is so much different and there's so many benefits, but companies had to get kind of, I'm trying to say, how do I say this about cursing? They need to kind of unscrew themselves a little bit about, you know, how to manage people that way. They couldn't just manage them by throwing them all in a building and watching them walk around and going from cubicle to cubicle or hearing noise or like whatever. And that's not productivity, but they were sort of convincing themselves that was. So what's really interesting is that we're seeing Big tech companies renegotiate people's salaries because they're now not living in like those major areas or saving money on that. That can end up being a savings back to the consumer in the long run. Maybe not this election, maybe a little, but in the next four years, 
because it really has been a large sort of congregation of people in big cities around the coastal states, and then a very large, you know, the rest of the population sort of in the middle. But what happens if everyone moves back to the middle? <laughs> you know, well, how, how, that might totally drastically change our country in some, whether good or bad way, I guess, depending on, on which side of the, the aisle you want to sit on. But um, it's really, really interesting how these things are, are are changing. And it took a pandemic, right? Not not best practices, not a not a logical way to look at this, but like a total drama to create this. So it 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 wasn't people like you and I screaming from the rafters like, think of talent differently, stop the bias, whether it's location, whether it has to do with implicit bias that exists. At the end of the day, we needed to think differently. And it took the great pause in order for us all to stop and think through how we're going to grow and scale businesses. Yeah. I mean, people were just forced to go remote and there, and then, so they figured it out. I mean, this is like, so what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention, right? I mean, it's like, you have to do something you're going to figure out how to do it. And uh, that's often I've seen some of the best leadership has said, this is where we're going. I want this thing to happen. And people had to figure out how to make it happen. And, you know, that instead of just, well, it'd be nice if we came up with a cool new product or a cool new service. I'm also really passionate about is this creating the right culture in a remote world. And I certainly want to get your thoughts on what companies do, because one of the things I have seen is that if you go remote and your culture is bad or it's not so good or just plain sucks, it, it, it actually gets worse when you go remote. Like it doesn't get, remote doesn't fix your culture problems. It actually amplifies them. So you have to be really focused on culture and doing it well if you want remote to work. So what are you seeing companies doing around that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's a great call out. This has been a scenario where employers can't hide when they had horrible culture. You know, you've got new apps coming out every day, like Blind that's out there where employees are talking about how horrid the culture is um, at certain, you know, tech organizations, for instance. So, you know, we know that we're hearing it more and more. So I think that some of the the interesting things I've seen some companies do is, is obviously the shift towards remote was one thing, but actually having a way by which they wanted to enhance culture in a meaningful way. You know, number one, it was transparency and saying, hey, this is the Wild West for all of us. So let's try to engage together and go through this together, um, whether it be things like, you know, doing, um, you know, un, unscheduled time just or unprompted time where you guys can be on camera with one another, doing things where you're like showing your homework office or, you know, engaging in things where you're showing photos or having conversations in the way that you would if you were in an onsite, you know, system, you know, if we're in quarantine or if we're in our own homes more often than not now. What does that affect us when it comes down to like loneliness? And does that become something from, you know, a perspective of, of mental health care? Do we need to really address that as, as employers and think differently about even the benefits that, you know, we have our benefits through, they're just now getting onto telehealth. So how do you address, you know, that um, to make sure you're taking care of the whole employee, you know, all of those perks that uh, we always hear about from Silicon Valley, like, what does that mean? How do you create a culture where, you know, somebody's excited to wear the t-shirt of your organization while sitting at home. You know, it's it's rethinking engagement and, and onboarding. Um, I think you're going to be more important than ever. Yeah. Ping pong tables and bean bags and buying them lunch or letting them have beer on Friday. Like that's not, even though it's cool, that's cool. You know, of this organization who did, has done a lot of these things and they've rapidly been growing and all of a sudden this big thing happened and everybody went home and they went, oh my, they suddenly were like asking me, your culture was always yeah. bad. You were just sort of like keeping it from being too much of an issue by bribing them with cool stuff, right? It was like right. the parent who was being annoying or to do their homework and that's not really solving the long-term right. problem. So yeah, I mean, there's, and I think you brought up a good point about the loneliness this idea that, you know, maybe work isn't the social place. Maybe that's not how you design it to have your friends there and that that's your social community. Maybe you need, maybe that's where you go do your work and you do awesome things and accomplish things and you, right. And it's part of your purpose and your value, but like, maybe that's not where your friends are and your friends need to be somewhere else, an outside group or not. And of course it's been really a challenge right now because 
it's another thing to be forced to work remote, stuck with your family, and you can't go out and hang out with your friends. This is like all at the same time, which is, yeah, I mean. So, and I do think you can hear some companies also from the from that same vein, you know, there are organizations where, you know, your entire social ecosystem is dependent on your, you know, the, the people that you see day in and day out at work. And I think that it is interesting. I think we're a bit more advanced in that than that sector being, you know, from the United States, you know, we often segment, I think more often than other countries do, you know, there's reports in like India, for instance, that people go on holiday together all the time. Um, that's not something that you would think of. I would never automatically think a coworker I would go on a vacation with that, that, that seems a little, you know, out, out there to me, but as we see in certain generations, that's normal. So what, what can we create and facilitate as a new normal while also addressing the fact that there could be some long-term ramifications with, uh, this disruption of our social self alongside that, you know, the person that is, is the employee. What's funny, I do now have three married couples across the different organizations that I that I lead. And so we do have to think about people taking um, vacations together, but it's because they're married. So we have to make sure that <laughs> right. it doesn't completely right. disrupt the entire company when they decide to go on vacation. So Right, absolutely. But I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, it's like I would never just like the random person in my office, like, you know, you may be, you know, lunch buddies with them or whatever, but like to go on vacation with them is a whole nother level of, uh, it, just, it seems crazy, but you know, in, in India and in UK, like there are lots of countries that that's, that's more a normal cadence, a part of the work life balance. That's, that's what, that is the norm. So we have to address that. And if you're a global organization, you have to start to think about culture from that broader sense too. Um, and how that can apply to, you know, the, the day in and day out, uh, grind of your organization as it goes remote. Yeah. Well, uh, there's certainly a lot to think about and we continue to evolve and to have, you know, we're, it's, it's also feels like we keep putting our toe in the water to see, can we get back to normal? Oh, oh not quite yet. Right. And it's like, <laughs> is, is the water warm enough yet? No, it's not. But you know, this, I'm- I think that, you know, contingent labor in, in the, I guess, most formal sense, it's been around for decades. It's not something new. I think most of us that may be disassociated with the contingent labor uh, ecosystem, they may assume that that is just gig labor. And it is, it is definitely a continuum, right? So there is gig labor that is out there. There is contingent workers that are working six months at a time and that are on assignment from maybe a staffing firm. So that is a, is um, an interesting scenario where companies are going back to almost like playbooks from the early 2000s or going to playbooks from 2008 and going into almost like a review or retrospective of what you've done in previous crisis moments and where did you either you know find ways to innovate where did you find ways to you know mitigate massive costs um so what we're seeing is we're seeing an influx of use cases for the work of a contingent you know contingent labor or gig based labor so maybe some companies are putting hiring freezes on for permanent hires, but they might be hiring more than ever through um, alternative methods, non-employee workforce. So we're seeing an increase in that. I think that that's going to continue to increase over time, especially as we have to start to start thinking through this whole meaning of what flexibility will be in our world. It's, it's just natural that flexibility is built, built into the contingent workforce. It's, it's the, the labor that's there is used to working either in fixed time constraints, uh, whether it be for a few hours or a few months, even years at times. So I think that we're just going to see an increased use of, of the labor force that's coming through on the contingent side. You know, I'm doing a webinar uh, later this month, and it's called The Essence of Future Leadership. Uh, you can go to peopleg2.com and look up webinars if you'd like to sign up. But I'm wondering if you what your thoughts are on what the future of work looks like, given what has happened, given what changes we're hopefully making, right? What epiphanies leaders may be making and maybe what you're seeing just in how they're handling talent. So what does that, what does the future look like for you? I think the future looks like leaning into the dispersed workforce, number one. Um, and I think we'll also have a, a more commonplace conversation around the leveraged workforce and understanding what, um, what we've learned from the gig economy, from the, the Uber's lists of the world. How do you take that method, use some of the technology to ensure matches are made appropriately to eliminate some bias, but how can you lean into technology to help facilitate a better relationship so that an individual can work the way that they want to work when they want to work and can still produce the results that a company needs. 
So I think that we're going to see a little bit of a, a time frame of adoption to this, and it's going to take some time. But I think that there's also going to be this um, challenge that we're going to see ahead is, you know, COVID also accelerated our adoption of technology. So we're consuming technology faster than we ever have been. So mm -hmm. what's going to happen is we're going to have new technologies emerge, and we won't have a uh, readily available talent pool that can absolutely stand up this new technology or maintain this new technology. So when we think through that, what does the continuum of work look like for an individual? It's lifelong learning. So we, that has to become a part of our own culture, our own internal ethos of our own career is that we can't be stagnant in learning. You have to be an amalgamation of skills over time. And that's not in one company. That's not in one position in your life. Um, we're going to have to lean in to know that, you know, as as we grow and scale in new tech, we're also going to have to grow and scale in our expertise as well. So I think companies are going to be actually doubling down and investing more in that and investing in talent pools that may not actually have anything to do with the organization. You're going to see companies invest in creating just the talent pool itself. And that kind of, I guess, goes back into if they're going to do that type of thing. Will, there, will this idea of the gig workers expand, right? Will people be getting more of those sort of flex workers or people who are willing to come in and do a small job, you know, uh, consistently or for a period of time, maybe to supplement what they're doing, maybe because they don't want to do something else full-time. And so this idea of flexibility that we've been talking about, um, do you think that companies need to start thinking about that and how they're also going to keep those people loyal to them so they can sort of have some connection to that group? Yeah, absolutely. I think the number one disservice that companies do is that they start to ramp up the use case of, um, contingent labor and of that contingent labor, at the end of the day, there should be parity. There should be no difference. You should be able to be on a Zoom call and not be able to tell the difference between somebody that is a W-2 employee versus an independent, because at the end of the day, you're all working towards the same goal. So as an organization, you have to start building for that. Or again, you're going to be left left uh, left behind as we're seeing with so many companies, you know, being exposed for, for their bad culture. Right. And, and that takes a real deliberate, like, I guess, creation, because if you want those gig people to be feel like they're there and they feel like they're just as a part of the team or as a part of the organization as someone who's full time, you have to be intentional. Right. If you just if you're not intentional, it's going to come off as something just totally disingenuous and, and, and not work. Well, I want to make sure uh, we ask you our two favorite questions before we end here. Is there a book that you're reading right now that you might share with us? Okay. Yeah. The book that I'm reading right now is Stealing Fire. It's by Stephen Kotler. Um, and it's really around understanding um, flow state and how uh, organizations maybe out of Silicon Valley or the Navy SEALs, how they've used um, ways to hack your mind in order to perform in a more cohesive, unified kind of community basis. So uh, really interesting stuff. It definitely applies to business, but I think it's also uh, independent of business as well. And last but not least, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more? Maybe yeah. they want to work with you, read your books, whatever, whatever it is. What's the best way for them to, to find you? Absolutely. Uh, LinkedIn, honestly, is, is, is usually where I uh, get the best connections because if I keep trying to maintain my email, I, I will never get it. So uh, LinkedIn, Summer Crenshaw is uh, the way to get a hold of me. Well, fantastic. And Summer, I really appreciate you being on the show today. We've learned so much from you. And uh, hopefully we can have you come back at some point and give us an update yeah. on everything that's going on. And I guess let's hope we're not still in a pandemic by the time that happens. Exactly. But, exactly. I'll still be at home, right? I mean, we'll all still be at home. But you and I'll still be at home. But, the at pandemic. Least, but at least like everyone else can go away or get out of our way. So yeah. Exactly. All right. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Summer. We'll be, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with my second guest, Colin J. Brown. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? 
Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we we do to we provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plans and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. CBS News on the Hour, sponsored by the Capital One Venture Card. I'm Peter King in Orlando. Democrats don't appear to be getting the specific answers they've been looking for from the Supreme Court nominee. Frustration from Democrats pressing Amy Coney Barrett on some of the most controversial issues that she could face. Senator Dianne Feinstein. Does the Constitution give the President of the United States the authority to unilaterally delay a general election under any circumstances. Cheered on by Republicans, Barrett refused to tip her hand. I just, because I'm a sitting judge, and because you can't answer questions without going through the judicial process, can't give answers to those very specific questions. Steve Dorsey, CBS News, Washington. For the second time this week, a drug maker has stopped a coronavirus vaccine clinical trial because a patient got sick. CBS's Lisa Mateo. An antibody treatment made by Eli Lilly has been put on pause because of a potential safety concern. It was being tested on hundreds of people hospitalized with coronavirus. It's not the first time a trial has been temporarily suspended. On Monday, Johnson & Johnson halted its coronavirus vaccine trial because of a sick volunteer. And last month, AstraZeneca stopped their vaccine trial after two participants became ill. The PGA says the world's top-ranked golfer Dustin Johnson has tested positive for COVID-19. So has a top soccer star. Suddenly red shirts flooding back. Chelsea, Cristiano Ronaldo! The Portugal national team says Ronaldo is not symptomatic and is now in quarantine. But Democrat Joe Biden has been talking about COVID-19 and the president with seniors in South Florida. He's never been focused on you. His handling of this pandemic has been erratic, just like his presidency has. And it has uh, prevented Florida seniors and people all across the country from getting the relief that they need. Mr. Trump campaigns in battleground Pennsylvania tonight. Early voting has begun in many states. Today it's Texas. It seems to be a hit in Dallas. Hygiene, the lines went smoothly, uh, voting, everything, the process was excellent. It was very easy. The process moved quickly. Social distancing, masks, the systems are working. Long lines are reported in a number of places. One woman near Austin says she waited for two hours. Texas is one of five states that didn't expand mail-in voting options. Republicans there claiming voter fraud. Virginia's voter registration deadline is today, but someone or something severed a fiber optic cable that shut down the state's online registration system. Officials say it's being fixed. While Democrats want an extension, the governor says only the courts can grant one. The Dow closed down 158. This is CBS News. Capital One is right in the palm of your hand, so you can check your balance, deposit checks, pay bills, and transfer money from your phone with a top-rated app. Get started online anytime. What's in your wallet? Capital One and A, member FDIC. You know, it's true. Difficult times have a way of focusing us. We have to think about what matters most when it comes to our spending, our health care, no doubt, this is why so many people are joining MediShare right now. MediShare is a trusted way to save up to 50% on your monthly health care costs. More than 400,000 people have already made the switch. It's pretty obvious why, too, especially now during this challenging season, 
with health care costs and out-of-pocket expenses going up, MediShare can save you a lot of money. The typical family saves $500 a month. And MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing ministry that's worked beautifully for 27 years. There are different options to choose from to fit your budget. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Maybe now is the perfect time to make the switch and start saving. Here you go. Call 866-88-BIBLE. That's 866-88-BIBLE. 866-88-BIBLE. Welcome back to Talent Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, Summer Crenshaw, you can listen to her interview as well as any other podcast uh, that we put together. We turn all these live shows into podcasts. So you can go to iTunes. You can go to iHeartRadio. You can go to Stitcher. You can go to Spotify. You can go to TalentTalkRadio.com and wherever you like to listen, just subscribe there. That way you can get alerted to when the show is available, when the next episode has been posted so you don't ever miss any of these fantastic guests that we have here every single week talking about talent and culture and really everything else that you might need to be focused on as a leader or as someone who wants to become a leader one day. All right, my uh, next guest is Colin J. Brown, the culture guy and founder of Happy Sandpit. As a reminder, uh, don't forget we are tweeting all of this live, so follow at PeopleG2 or also that hashtag talent talk and all of our best comments, links to profiles, to books, anything else that's mentioned, we will put there. But I want to go ahead and welcome Colin in all the way from Johannesburg, South Africa. Welcome to the show today, sir. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what is the work that you do, and what's important for us to know about you for our conversation today? Well, well I'll tell you one thing I think we probably ought to deal with up front is the translation of the word a sandpit and what we mean by that. And I think what you guys mean by that is something a little bit different. So, so for <laughs> us, obviously a sandpit is that thing like a sandbox. I think you'd call it over there. It's the thing okay. that the kids play in and, and, um, and, and the organization happy sandpit that, that, that I founded, um, 2013 was really based on a book that I wrote called how to build a happy sandpit, um, which was research that I did into organizational culture in South African businesses, um, around about that stage. And really all it was, was it was me going back to, journalism roots from from a decade previously uh, trying to solve a problem that i had in a previous business that that i i, I was running at the time uh, before happy sandpit you know we'd started a business we'd, we'd we'd built some products we'd done some things that were quite good but we'd never really managed to solve this how to get people you know how to get to the people and how to how to how to pull them together and how to create teams that just gel and all of that so it became an itch that i couldn't stop scratching and and, and ultimately i went out i began to research it just speaking to really the A-list of South African business, you know, celebrities, if you like, the CEOs of the best known businesses and going out and spending time with them. What was really interesting to me at the time was that, you know, these guys, I think they got asked a lot about business and about, about operations and about sales. But, but when I knocked on their door and said, I want to talk about culture, the doors just flew open. It was, it was, it was almost like nobody had really done that before. Nobody mm-hmm. had really asked them about that before. And they really found it a fascinating topic and they couldn't understand why it wasn't more current. Well, now, of course, fast forward seven years and it's, it's, it's on everybody's lips. It's what everybody's talking about. And the work we've done in between then is to develop some products and, you know, get some clients and do some good work, I hope. And, you know, when I was in uh, Johannesburg and I was speaking at a conference, I remember the absolute thirst for knowledge around. So I did two talks, I did one around culture. And so, you know, I, I think definitely connects to what you were saying. I mean, people really wanted to learn more. It was something of really high value and of high interest to them at the time. But I will say that in my second talk and talk in, in delivering about how to have a remote company, I had both fascination and also horror. Uh, so sort of this response of like, well, that's awesome. And that sounds really cool, but <laughs> we would never do that here. It was oh, sort of that kind of an idea. Right. And so, you know, usher in a pandemic and, you know, uh, and now they got forced to do it. You know, there's some challenges, I think, in Johannesburg that maybe we don't think about here in the United States. When I was there, like getting a good internet connection was was usually my daily challenge uh, when I wanted to have video calls with people back home and things like that, where, at least where I was. So how, how, has, how has South Africa dealt with this? I, I know there's some, we're all seem to be dealing with some level of politics, we all, some level of, sure, sure. of a, no one is immune from that. And I think our two countries are certainly... Uh, up there, but you know how how are you, how are companies dealing right now with with this remote work in general? So they've adapted to it surprisingly well because you're right. There's always been a, 
a, a general view that we don't have the infrastructure, we don't really have the culture that deals with that. We, and you're right, getting a decent internet connection, for example, is, is something that, that precludes any of that kind of thinking. And so what we actually saw in the last five years even, Chris, where did you do a talk incidentally? Was it in, in you said it was in Johannesburg, was it in, in Santon by any chance? Uh, well, it was at the Hyatt, and so I'm trying to remember exactly where yeah, that so, was. So same sort of area. So this is kind of the business area, and I don't know what it looked like then, but in the last, the last decade, it's been transformed dramatically. And in the last five years in particular, mm -hmm. where companies have put together these multi-billion rand giant buildings to house all 7,000 of their employees, and right. one after another, they've opened these things up only to find that now they're all empty. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine that they're ever going to be full again. So, so the, the thinking was we, we work under one roof. That was, that's always been the thinking and, and nobody's ever planned for anything like that. So you're right, along comes a pandemic and suddenly everything has to change, but actually people seem to have adapted quite well to it. Um, so we've been doing a whole series of surveys around this with, uh, with companies just trying to understand, you know, we, we figured that there's probably a, a, a dearth of information at the leadership level about how to make this happen because nobody's got a playbook for it. And so the intelligence that probably resides at the employee level, they're the ones who are trying to make it work on a daily basis. They're the ones who've had to work out how to run efficiently and you know, how to be efficient while the kids are at home. And you know, under lockdown, the kids were locked down as well. It was, it was right. horrendous. Uh, they've had to figure out how to do all of that kind of stuff. And so we think the intelligence actually lies with them. And what we've been pushing is this idea that um, it, you know, leaders don't always have all the answers, but this time around, it's absolutely okay to say it. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's usually okay to say it, but you haven't felt that it is. Well, now you almost look like a dummy if you pretend you know all of the answers because there's no <laughs> way you can. So yeah. getting real about it, it's, 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 um, but, but the change is, is, has, been, has been dramatic. I mean, we know that um, some of the big, um, one of the big credit card operators has been explicit that it's never going back to an office. And, and a number of other organizations have started saying things like that, but they certainly don't expect to see you know, anything above sort of 50% capacity inside the offices, even by the end of 2021. So we've made this transition one way or another. We've definitely yeah. made it. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, I was there just, just over a year ago and could really feel the beginnings. I, I shouldn't say beginnings. This is my single perspective, which is not yeah. certainly accurate to the world uh, of what's really going on. But I certainly felt like there was this, like, maybe you guys were kind of getting over the edge or hit, hit the peak, right? The, the cl of climbing the mountain to get to that point of having things in place to really become ultra productive or ultra successful for organizations and companies and things like that. And only to have the pandemic hit, right. Which, yeah. you know, we all sort of had this, this challenge, but you know, are there other challenges that you think companies and cultures are, are having to deal with beyond just the fact that, you know, is there the internet in, are we all going to work together in the future and things like that? Are there other, those sounds like there was some old sort of archaic leadership thinking in there and so yeah they got forced to go remote yeah. they got forced to do some of these things but that doesn't mean some of that archaic stuff is still gone right what do you it think it surprises right. me you know it surprises me i mean we, we have a mixture of, of of both things we always talk about being a mixture of sort of first world first world and third world in south africa and you can see that just in the you know it's the greatest divide between rich and poor and you're talking about when we talk about the divide we're talking about other side of the wall almost it's 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 remarkable actually um, how, how it's progressed in such a patchwork fashion. Uh, progressed, maybe it hasn't, not nearly enough. But the one thing that I've, I've always been, been amazed by is, is the, the, and I, I'll get into trouble for saying things like this, but the, the kind <laughs> of old school, almost bully thinking that goes into the leadership style in South Africa. And so so I, I grew up, Chris, I grew up in Belgium. I moved down from Belgium when I was 12 to South Africa. I, in Belgium, I went to a school where there were you know, 60 kids and the teachers came in from Boston and Ukraine and, 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 and you know, uh, Hanover and wherever they were. Um, and they stayed for a couple of years and they taught and then they moved on. We, we have such a small school. We ended up going to play sports against schools in Amsterdam and Yugoslavia, just trying to mm -hmm. find schools our size. And, and then we moved down here and I'm placed into a school where there's a uniform, there's 800 kids and there's a hierarchy. And the hierarchy is one that I never really never really managed to assail. I'm not a big kid, I'm not a butch kid. It's all about rugby and, 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 and all of that kind of thing. Right. It was definitely definitely around machismo. And all of about course, the Springboks, about, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm talking about the apartheid era as well. So this was very much a segregated country. This was a white school with white kids. That's how it was. And, 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 and essentially what it was, was there was kind of a, a natural undercurrent of militarism that was brewing through it. So, and, and that's just how it was. It's just the kind of thing that we accepted. You fast forward now, and it's a very interesting thing to me because I occasionally lecture at the Wits Business School 
when they have a, an international MBA program, if they have a culture elective, I'll go in there, I'll go in there and I'll, I'll do a little bit of a talk on culture, uh, present a lecture on that. And, and um, I, I decided to try something out the one day and I had this slide up of the chef Gordon Ramsay and the property developer, Sol Kersner. Now, Sol Kersner is a guy who developed Paradise Palm Island in the Bahamas and all that. But before that, he was a, a well-renowned South African property developer, brilliant visionary, brilliant this, brilliant that, but not a very nice guy, right? Hard man to work for. Gordon Ramsay, as you know, he's got a show called The F Word. The F stands for food, but it may as well stand for the other thing. He's, right. he's, he's coarse, he's brash, he's unpleasant. I sit there and I look around the room and I see what I'm looking at are the faces of the guys who used to be the first team rugby team players sitting in the room. Now we're all 25 years older, 30 years older now. And I say, guys, let's just talk about what, what do you think you'd learn from these people? And they all went on the usual things, how to run a great restaurant, how to cook great food, et cetera, et cetera. I said, but, but you think you'd learn anything else? And they were like, well, what do you think? What are you getting at, Colin? And I said, do you think you'd learn how to be a bully? And they said, no, they're not bullies. They're just demanding. They're exacting. They have high standards. This is the problem, is that there's very often this, this kind of sense that we know how the world is, and, and we haven't managed to change that from the system yet. So, I mean, I, I, I absolutely would not wish to imply that any of those businesses that are, you know, have built those big, big, big buildings to have people under one roof are run by bullies. That's the furthest thing from what I'm saying. But I certainly think we haven't got nearly enough new age thinking into our, into our leadership. It's coming, though. I have to say, there's a lot of business that I'll give credit for. And I mean, I couldn't have written my book if, if I hadn't managed to find them. Right. I mean, they're definitely. Yeah. There. Well, and you can use Gordon Rams, I think, because I don't know the other person as well. But Gordon Rams is a great example of in his purest form of his work. Right. Where he was extremely demanding and he was this sort of, you know, crazy hothead inside the kitchen. But that was the, the kitchen culture. It kind of has a particular way in which it operates and it is accepted. But if you look at his work outside of that, he's far more caring. He's far more. He's a totally different person. Right. He he's definitely giving control to other people to run other restaurants and other divisions. And he's certainly much, maybe he's evolved. Maybe he's grown, right? Maybe you could look maybe, at maybe. early, early Gordon versus Gordon now, right? I mean, his shows now are much more softer and tender and uh, unlike a, uh, who would it be? Uh, who, who, the judge on American Idol, who's a, you know, he, Simon that guy, Cowell? Yeah, Simon Cowell's consistently that way. He's consistently yes, a yes. jerk on every show he's in and everything he's in, like, there is no variance of that. I never see a soft side to him. Yeah. So, but it's, it, you're right. It's interesting. And we'll be learning those things from these particular things. And that's one of the challenges of sports. Sports can give us great structure, great teamwork, great lessons, great goals, but it can also give us that un needless hierarchy, the uh, physical domination, the sort of things that maybe don't work so much in business, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to understand when it comes to people like Gordon Ramsay, Steve Jobs is another one of those people. I mean, working with them comes at a, a certain psychological price, maybe. But the only reason you'd stand by them and do that is because they're so wildly charismatic and talented that you'll learn a huge amount for the, from them. Right. If you don't have that kind of charisma or that kind of talent, then all you are <laughs> is somebody who breaks people. Right. And I think too many people model themselves on the hard level, the hard sort of aspect of leadership without thinking about what the impact of all of that actually is. It's not about getting great work out of people at all. It's about fueling an ego and yours. And, 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 it's, and it's extremely damaging. And I think that, you know, that's one of the ways in which um, certainly even, you know, the, the, the conversation, uh, we, we've got a lot of work to do here in, in, a, in a whole range of social, uh, social um, genres, if you like. I mean, we haven't, we haven't dealt with many of the ghosts of our past. Um, we have the biggest uh, uh, sort of socioeconomic differences between people. We have the biggest sort of unintegrated populations. I mean, it's, there's so many things that we have to do. But, but, but so many companies are actually focusing on this now uh, as a priority and, and ones that are really, really surprising. So I've been doing some work with uh, some of the mining companies of late and you know, mining is a very hard world to be in. There's very little that's soft about it. And yet it's almost like there is a, a, a sort of a new breed of mine leadership that's kind of gone, you know, we've done the whole command and control, push and shove, carrot and stick thing for decades and decades and decades. But all it gives us is an upstream problem. And the upstream problem very simply is the people, because we know no matter what we do, we have to do it again tomorrow if mm -hmm. we don't somehow get into these guys' heads and create an environment that they actually kind of choose to do it. The way in which they're going to choose to do it, and by the, by, what I mean by this is that you know, no employee is contractually obligated to come to work with a good attitude. They're contractually obligated to come to work. They're contractually obligated to do their job. 
but they're not contractually obligated to care. They're not contractually obligated to go the extra mile. They're not contractually obligated to do any of those sorts of things. If you want them to do that, I mean, you have to make them want to. Those are voluntary things. Uh, this, I think, is something that the bully culture can't quite get its head around, and that's partly why yeah. the old systems kind of keep on getting perpetuated. But the reality is these things are voluntary, and what we need to be doing is playing to those voluntary behaviors, making it so that people actually want to come to work and do a good job. How do we do that? Engagement is the only answer to that, and it's the only one that we've actually seen. And we had a very interesting experience uh, sorry, I don't know if I'm just rattling on now, whether I'm no, just no, connecting thoughts. No. Well, uh, well, and I was going to say, I don't know if you ever, we have a famous game show here in America called The Family Feud, and I don't know if that's yeah. something you've ever, no, so, but... yeah, and, and so they asked these questions, that have been, people have been surveyed, and the question yesterday was, uh, your company expects 110%, what percent do you actually give? And both people separately, without knowing it, gave, said 50%. And everyone who I was watching with in the room with me was aghast. They were shocked that 50% was all these people were giving. Uh, to, and I went, that's high. Like if you're yeah. forcing, if you're, if you're sort of, if you don't have the right culture and the right engagement strategy, they're going to give you the minimum. They're going to give you yeah. what they need to give you to get by, to get their paycheck and nothing more unless you're right. Stick and carry yeah. it, beat them over the head or have tie them to something else that makes more sense. Yeah. You know, one question I did want to ask you, because something I found really fascinating in South Africa, being there for the first time, was, and it might be oversimplified uh, uh, example here, but I went up and I asked several people, like, what's the best way for me to say hello or to, to greet someone here in South Africa? And they said, well, hello. You know, it was like, you know, basically what they were saying was, whatever your language is, that's the right yeah. way to do it. And yeah. I don't think people realize how many different languages there are constantly going on in South Africa. I, I would watch people uh, in all sorts of different business contexts, one person answering, asking a question to their coworker in their language, only to have their coworker answer back into their, a different language. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, my, I, I have friends that know lots of languages and they can switch. They will just switch into a new language and then converse in that language. But I'm watching people mixing between each other yeah. and this incredible amount of like, complexity and yet it seemed normal to them. And I wondered, does that bring an element of a challenge? Does that bring an element for an opportunity or how does that play do you think in inside of South Africa that so many languages are happening at one time? So I think, I, I mean, I don't think in and of itself it's, it's necessarily um, noteworthy on a daily basis. It's certainly something that is, you know, if you land on an airplane and they say goodbye to you in lots of different languages, you, you're always reminded that there are 11 official languages in South Africa. <laughs> Yeah, 11, 11 official languages, but, but they're not all spoken equally. I mean, many of them don't make it out of the, um, out of the uh, sort, of, uh, sort of local areas. So languages like Zulu, English, Afrikaans, because uh, some of these languages are, are much, more, much more common. I think, though, what it does is it naturally attunes us to the need for diversity, to be, to be, to be aware of, of, of how diverse we actually are. And I think that's one way in which we're doing possibly some of the best work. I mean, I know that we've got so much work to do that we, um, you know, we, we don't give ourselves nearly enough credit for it, but I think we're doing, we're doing some really, really good work there. And, and I think it's one of those things where it's begun to gradually be accepted that where diversity is mandated, by the way, by government, it's like, it's one of those things you kind of have to do. It's no longer seen as, as frequently as a tick box that you have to do in order to remain legal. It's kind of seen as rocket fuel for organizations. And, and the, the thinking goes, you know, I'm a white guy. I'm 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 uh, 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 50 years old. I, I was raised as a Catholic. I'm non-practicing. I'm English speaking. I've got three children. I'm married. This, that, and the other. If this is the circle of human experience, that's how much of it I'm able to see. And it doesn't matter. I pay attention to my wife and my children. I want to know about these things, but I can't live. I can't walk in their shoes. And unless all of my customers are going to be white guys who are 50 and 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 have all my background, I can't sell to people in a, in a way that makes sense unless I have more experience in that. And that's what diversity actually starts to do. And it's not that hard to find or build in diversity in, an organ in a country that has so much of it available as, as ours does. I've also, you know, one of the, the pillars of, of culture that I like to focus in on is this idea of uniqueness, right? So we often as, as a company or as a group of people want to try to figure out what makes us all the same. And I think that's a big mistake. It's better for us to figure out what makes us different and what makes us special and what, how, how we might be able to then help the group in a different way. And I just, I wondered if that might be eventually, or, or maybe it's, it is now like 
with people speaking so many different languages, to me, it was so obvious how different people were. What was different or what was special about them? What was unique about them, right? They weren't just South African as, a, as an outsider coming in. They were these different types of people, different yeah. languages, different. And, and that that's often, at least from an American perspective, very hard for people to understand that we should focus on what makes us different and what makes us unique, you know, instead of just trying to, you know, make it all the same, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, th there's always been this argument, you know, I mean, so if you were to, to think about what is a South African, I mean, are, are they black? Are they white? Are they Kosa? Are they Zulu? Are they English? Are they Afrikaans? Are they Portuguese or Italian? I mean, there's so many, there's so, so many, many different variables. And, and the answer is, well, all of those things. So then, then how do you speak to that? And, 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 and what do you do? And I always think about, you know, you think about is there, is there such a thing as an American culture? I mean, yeah, sure, there is. There's so many diverse cultures across the United States. If you were to take the surfer from Venice Beach and you know and and right. and pair him up with the the sort of the red meat eating uh, bond trader on Wall Street, they've got nothing in common whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They probably wouldn't like each other at all. They'd look at each other as totally different. If you took those and put them in a village in Kenya, the only two Americans there, they'd start to find their similarity. Exactly. And it's these, it's these moments where you start to find your similarities that really matter. And this is what we've had with a country under pressure is these similarities actually come out again and again. We actually find that we actually care about the same vision of the future. We may not care about the same things right now, but we generally care about the same vision of the future. One where, you know, we have a, a responsible government and, and, and we can you know, have a, a growing economy and we have a safe place to educate children and all of that. It doesn't matter what language you speak or what color you are. We all want the same things there. And in that, we're able to agree and we're able to come up with sort of a mutual sort of circumstance, if you like. Well, this has really been fascinating and I appreciate your perspectives and, and calling in all the way from, uh, from, from South Africa today. You know, if it's people are interested, pleasure. I'm sorry? No, it's been a great pleasure. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's great. So Colin, if they, uh, people want to find out more about you, if they want to get a hold of you, if possibly if they're in your neck of the woods and they want to work with you, or maybe you can yeah. work with them internationally as well, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? So the website is happysandpit.com. You can write to info at happysandpit.com. It is actually a manned email address, so somebody will always pick that up. You can DM me on Twitter at Colin J. Brown or at happysandpit is also a Twitter handle. There's, there's a variety of different ways. Well, that's fantastic, Colin. I really appreciate our conversation today, and uh, hopefully I can make it back uh, over to uh, South Africa. I promised my wife, I told her what a wonderful place it was. And then I promised I would take her there. And then the pandemic has made me a liar. So I'll have to get there eventually, but uh, hopefully we can grab a coffee or something. You sure, you look me up. Absolutely. All right. Thanks Great. everyone Thank for tuning so in. Much. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you everyone for tuning into today's show. Hopefully you've gained something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.